Chiquita is a writer and performer living in Columbus, Ohio. She has been published in national literary anthologies, including Fifth Wednesday Journal, Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel, Falling Star, and Poetry in the Time of Coronavirus, Volume 2. Chiquita was nominated for a Pushcart Prize and is featured on the Long Street Cultural Wall in Columbus, Ohio. After working for six years as project coordinator for Ohio's Poetry Out Loud National Recitation Contest, she was hired full-time to serve as Arts Learning Program Coordinator at the Ohio Arts Council. A talented writer who operates beyond genre boundaries, Chiquita has also extensive fiction, nonfiction, playwriting, and acting credits. To learn more about her extensive work and awards, please visit ChiquitaMullinsLee.com. Chiquita, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here with you. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'd like to start by having you read a poem. All right, I can do that. So I will read um, this poem called Virus on the Ground. <clears throat> Is this a good time to be Black in America? not seen unless seen as criminal, disposable, someone who does not matter. What I see when I see black me disturbs me. I see me chained, rifled. I see me handcuffed, white cop, fist, knee, gun, arms to this neck until me does not breathe. Just another day on the job, no matter. Could be George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Tyree King, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, Atatiana Jefferson, Botham Jean, Rayshard Brooks in this exhausting fragment of a roll call, exhausted from being invisible unless seen as criminal. Is this a good time to be black in America? Consider black men in my life, two brothers, one ex-husband, one nephew from my sister, three nephews from my brothers, dozens of cousins, friends who are just like brothers to me. Their living gives me life, reminds me it's a good time to be black because of the good in black, the talented love, gifted faith, generous grace to build, think, negotiate, and create black life. I relish it search for it, signs of black life. Why? Because it matters. A heavy heart, body spent, and eye steady, I walk, searching for signs of black life. A blue-eyed mom says, we're with you. A blonde girl child stares into my face. I search in suburbs, under oak trees, past mansions, manicured lawns, and the message to act on love and not hate. In a silent solo march in dark colors grieving, sometimes finding and endlessly scanning, searching for signs of Black life. We know the signs. A Spellman banner, Morehouse flyer, Howard U flag, smoke rising from the summer grill, gospel music from the windows, Holy Cross at Christmas, in the congregations, corner office, in the boardrooms, midst the bankers, in the White House, in the whole house, signs of black life. Why? Because it matters. It matters so much to me. 
That's beautiful. Thank you so very much. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. And, and I, I had the pleasure of reading this poem ahead of time, and it's always so different hearing someone read it. I mean, you you really do. You can tell. You can tell that you're a cross a cross genre writer who who is steeped in performance. And and you know, do you when you approach poems like these, do you write with the performance in mind, or are you you know, is it is is it something that comes out and you you have to put down the words that you think exemplifies it best, and you'll figure that out later? How does that work? <sighs> yeah, the writing always comes first. The writing comes first. I, I'm really at that time not thinking about the performance or whether it will be performed because I don't always know that the opportunity to do that will come. Uh, with the exception of uh, the a couple of writing groups that I work with, you know, in those times when we know we're going to perform. But I'm still thinking about it in terms of the language itself, you know, and kind of how it signs, sounds in my ear as opposed to how it's going to sound to somebody else because I don't always know. I really can't take that for granted. You know, I can hope that it's going to reach somebody else. But usually it's such uh, an intuitive process, I guess, and just what I'm feeling and thinking about at the time. And then, of course, as you know, being a writer yourself, it's all about the editing and the rewriting process. And so once I get the ideas down on the page, it's time to go back and back and back again and yeah. again, <laughs> polishing and repolishing. So yeah, but the words and the ideas come first and I work on the performance later. And I rehearse a lot. I tend to rehearse a lot. Uh, use like edit a lot and rehearse a lot. Okay. So how, how do you decide? I mean, because you write in every genre. How, how do you decide what emotion or what content is right for a certain medium? Oh, I don't know if I actually consciously decide about, you know, the emotion um, because the emotion kind of, kind of selects the work. It's so weird. I wrote a piece years ago about the idea of deciding all right, is this a poem? Is this a song? Is this a short story? Is this a novel? You know, just kind of think about, you know, what is it? What is this piece really? What, how does this idea want to be expressed? Yeah. And I don't know that I really answered the question, but I, I just know that some things feel like poems to me, as opposed to really wanting to explore something and tell a story. I don't think I've ever written a poem that became a story. And like I've played with fiction and nonfiction and deciding, all right, should this be a memoir piece or should this be, you know, a fiction piece? You know, so I kind of play with those kind of things. Or should it be a play? You know, do I have a lot of dialogue I want to work with? <laughs> <laughs> Am I trying to tell the story through dialogue? I guess it just kind of comes organically. If, it, if it's an image or an idea that's, that feels like I can express it pretty quickly, then it becomes a poem. And I hope a poem that's going to be <laughs> that's going to work because you know poetry is hard I think I think all writing is hard sure all writing is hard <laughs> yeah I, I would agree with that <laughs> yeah yeah um so it's almost like the idea selects the genre and then we go from there and hope it works yeah I, I can see that and, and I think I think that you're that there's 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 cross genre stuff that happens no matter what. I mean, if, if, if you're writing a poem and you're saying it out loud, there, there's a performance aspect to that. Yeah. And 
I, I noticed your, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the play Blackbird by David Harrower. Um, it, it was a play that was written uh, the way you write your poems. The way you write your poems, you lineate them almost, it's, it's less like classic poetry lineation where you're trying to make these, these nice uh, stanzas, you know, and everything kind of looks the same and it's uniform. Yeah. Um, yours are almost lineated toward beats, like, like in a play. Um, mm -hmm. Is that an intentional effect? How, how, did you, how have you decided that that was part of your style? Because it's an interesting element of your craft. Interesting. Um, I, it really flows for me. It really is a matter of flow and how I'm hearing it in my head. Um, you know, to some extent, I, I, I think about what it's going to look like on the page and, and how I want the sounds to flow from, one, from line to line. I guess that's a, a big part of it. You know, there are rare occasions when I will write in stanzas or when I will rhyme we don't do a lot of rhyming these days. <laughs> that's out of reading, style. <laughs> I remember reading a poem. I was at a poetry reading, participating in a poetry reading a few years ago. And I did a disclaimer in advance of this particular poem. I said, okay, y'all, this one rhymes. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> <laughs> and so that one was very much in, you know, stanzas, you know, the four lines to a stanza and all of that. But um I think it comes down to just how I hear it in my head because I will change. Actually, the one that I just read, the first draft of it was just basically like this one block, not, you know, one, one big block of maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 lines. Reminds me kind of my friend, uh, Ricky Santer, because I've seen a lot of her poems where she's just like this, just a block of poetry, you know, just very beautiful, you know, beautiful words, just kind of, you know, shaped in that way. Um, and so that's how Virus in the Ground started out. But then as I continued to play with it and add to it, then I wanted certain words to be, you know, off to themselves. And maybe with the idea of, you know, someone reading it and thinking, all right, you know, this word is important, you know, focus on it. And then when I'm reading it, but reading it, realizing that, you know, this word or this line is important. So I want to, you know, focus on that and kind of set it apart from the others. Um, a lot of it, I it kind of goes from the heart. You know, I'm a, as most poets are, fairly sensitive person, fairly emotional person. <laughs> so, uh, so much of it goes by um, the emotion at the time and, and what's gonna build, you know, trying to make it build and um, just focusing on those, those lines and those feelings that, that, are, that are important and that I wanna emphasize. Yeah, and, and you do that, like the, the words why, you have the words why by themselves on their own line. And you do it twice. You do it once in the second stanza and, and once in the third stanza. And that gives a great emphasis because you can't read a one word line and not stop and think about it, especially if it ends in a question mark. You yeah, know? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That lineation is interesting. Do you have other poetic craft techniques that you rely on heavily like that, that you know are consciously employed? Um, a lot of it, I think a lot of the craft to me, I talked about the feeling, I guess the other part of it is the ear, you know, how it sounds to me. 
I um I like alliteration, but I try not to overdo. I used to do a lot more alliteration. <laughs> it was like when I discovered alliteration, it was like a new toy, and so I wanted to, <laughs> you know, have all those consonant sounds, you know, clicking together at the same time, and you yeah. know, and then kind of wanted to play with assonance, you know, after I discovered that, and you know, making sure that we had that internal kind of rhyme scheme going. Um, so, you know, these days, so I think maybe I'm relaxing the rules a little bit, but still focusing on things like, you know, trying to create that imagery, trying to capture the senses, you know, because some of the best poetry, you know, really, you know, paints a picture, you taste it, you smell it, you know, you feel the texture. And so I try to make sure, I try to look for those places where I can build that in, can build in, all that figurative language to make it a real, you know, a real sensory experience. Mm -hmm. But then I also know that there's a value in just kind of in telling a story that might not necessarily paint a picture. I think about the poems like this one poem for love by Robert Creeley, and I'm not going to be able to quote any of it. I don't know if I should anyway, but, but, you know, he's talking about the concept of love and so much of poetry is conceptual. And a lot of mine is conceptual too. So I'm not necessarily painting that picture, but I'm exploring that idea. And so then the craft is, you know, is around, have I really explored as many angles as, of this idea? You know, am I really communicating what I'm trying to communicate? You know, do you understand the message if there is a message? And yeah. I have to be careful with messages because when I always want to give a message, <laughs> we want to, I guess, convey an experience. So, you know, is it clear? Does it work? I think that is the question that, that it comes down to for me in, in so many instances. Does this poem work? You know, do you feel it? Um, does it make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, does it make sense in a way that's beautiful? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially poetry, you know, compared to other disciplines, there is an emphasis on beauty in the language as, you, as you're speaking it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have this one poem, uh, called uh, It Took Ruth, and it makes no sense. It, and it goes, it took Ruth and her visit to bring me back in, but bring me back in, she did. And I'm like, bring me back into what? I don't know. But it goes on and on and on and on. It ends up with the sharing of a single twin bed. What does that mean? <laughs> but it does create these images, and it creates this feeling. If I've read it in person, people are like smiling and kind of swaying along with me. So... I, I love poems that don't necessarily make sense, but you feel it somewhere in, inside of you. And, yeah. and I think that, yeah. I, I would, I, that's, that's, that's cool because, you know, like the Beatles wrote, I am the walrus, right? right. And they, they right. said, this is a nonsense song. We're just gonna <laughs> prove that people like it. And what they were, maybe the lyrics were nonsensical, but they still created a beautiful experience and it wound up being one of the most popular songs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Jabberwocky. We don't know what any of the brillic, what the heck is brillic? <laughs> Lively toes, huh? <laughs> yep, yep. Harry, Harry Potter had a bunch of words that were nonsense up until, you know, they make sense in the universe, but you pull yeah. them out and you hand someone a glossary of stuff that J.K. Rowling made up and they'll look at the list and be like, I don't know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, E.E. E. Cummings was an early influence when I was a little girl, you know, probably in high school. And, you know, he's got this weird parenthesis and then a leaf falls and there's something within the parenthesis and like, I don't know why I like this, but it works. 
<laughs> it just like brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> so was was he an influence? Who who were your poetic influences? Um, okay, so I'll I'll tell you, kind of you know growing up, I, and I was thinking about you know talking to you and and how this whole poetry thing started, and you know going back years and years ago, my mother used to read to me, you know, period. She read to me all the time. And we had uh, the Harvard classics. So she'd pull out like, you know, the fairy tales and stuff. And um, and then of course, at Christmas time, the night before Christmas, you know, so that's rhyming. And then all the Dr. Seuss books, you know, with all that rhyming stuff. So, so seeds were planted. <laughs> and so then, you know, in the third grade, I started, you know, writing a little short story. The teacher liked it a lot and put it on the bulletin board in the hallway. So that, you know, that happened. And in the fourth grade, I wrote this poem and my teacher was like, wow, it was, it was one of those, you know, March wind blows the clouds together and it makes April's rainy weather and something about flowers and showers, you know, so it, <laughs> <laughs> so it reminded me, she really liked it. And she really encouraged me. So get to the sixth grade and my teacher, Miss Tuggle, made us memorize. And, and I went to, I, I grew up in Atlanta you know, predominantly black schools, black, you know, educators all the way through to high school. A few, there was a mixture like in high school because they started integrating. But, you know, a lot of, you know, really talented, brilliant, committed black teachers. So Miss Tuggle is a black woman who assigned poetry memorization. And so, you know, if, you know, and equipment and, you know, all, you know, Emerson and, you know, all those folks. And I was able to memorize these poems. She'd make a stand up in front of class and recite these poems. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so that was part of it. And so, it, but I, I gravitated to it. I, I loved it. So then I get to high school and I had started keeping a diary. You know, that was a thing. You know, I've been writing little short stories in elementary school. So the writing part was always part of it. So then I get to high school and we're reading all the different books and I take English classes and the teachers are assigning poetry and I'm trying to write little poetry. And then I discover love. And so, you know, whoever my little boyfriend was, was you know, trying to write a poem about him. But then I get to the 12th grade and I take a Spanish class, but my Spanish teacher was also a poet. Ooh. And I must've shown her some poetry or something. And so she decided to create like a little poetry club for the school. And so we got together, we would write poems, and then we did a poetry anthology. Now, this is Frederick Douglass High School in Atlanta, Georgia, all black, predominantly black high school. We did a poetry anthology called Images Us, and I was one of the editors, and I had all these poems that I had written. Then she gives us the opportunity to do a sort of a, a spoken word presentation to present a poetry reading, basically, in front of you know, a select group of folks at the school. Yes. And so I get up and I read this poem and it's like about, it's about my little boyfriend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, but everybody was like, whoa, you know, because it was so personal. And even the teacher was excited because she's like, oh, you're so quiet in class. You know, you're so shy and you get up and you reveal all this, you know, stuff about you and your little boyfriend. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but Nikki Giovanni was like one of the ones who we as a group kind of gravitated to. We love Nikki Giovanni. We love Maya Angelou. You know, because that was, you know, kind of the time, you know, poetry was kind of sprouting and those people were the, the voices that we heard and the people that we emulated. Sure. And then I get to college and there's Ntozaki Shange. And for colored girls who consider suicide when the rainbow is enough. And she just blew my mind. And I don't know that I consciously 
emulated her, but I think I read for Colored Girls so many times, and plus I've seen it <laughs> a number of times, the PBS production, as well as on stage. And I think there must have been some kind of cross fertilization thing happening because I catch myself kind of doing that and trying to tell the stories of black women and stories of, of love and loss and the, the kind of things that she was doing. And, and even it, a lot of my writing is also faith-based because I'm involved you know, with the church that is also very progressive. And I started a writing group with my church. And so, you know, so we were doing these kinds of things, you know, telling these stories, but from a faith perspective. And I remember thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to have like a story of Christian women in the same way that Ntozaki Shange is talking about black women. And, sure, you know, sure. years and years down the road, I've written a series of monologues on women from the Bible, but speaking those stories from the perspective of a black woman. So, so yeah, so, so Nikki, Nikki Giovanni, Ntozaki Shange, all just very strong influences. And then there are folks like Maya Angelou, of course, and Rita Dove, and the list goes on. Some of the Columbus poets, I would start naming them and then be upset because I left out some. But a lot of the OPA members, the men and the women are just phenomenal. And even though I can't necessarily do what they do or do it the way they do it, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm instructed by, by them and by what they do. So I keep myself kind of open because if I see somebody do something really well, I think, should I, should I try that? You know, can I, can I create that kind of metaphor? You know, these are a little bit easier. Sometimes metaphors are, are hard. And I remember someone saying to me, I was in a writing group years ago and, she, and, and I read a poem and a woman said, well, a poem is a metaphorical statement. And I thought, wow, how do you do that? <laughs> 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 and I've seen people do it so well, you know, and then others don't, it's not like it's a rule. Fortunately, it's not a rule because when I heard her say that, I thought, okay, this is a rule. It's not a rule, but it's just one approach. But, but a really good metaphor, you can't beat a really good metaphor. <laughs> it's, it, it's true. And, and have you ever felt then like, because when I read someone else's poetry collection, I get inspired. I, I'm like, yes, you know what? I should be writing right now. You know, do you ever feel that way? <laughs> yes, yes. I know we'll probably talk about poetry out loud in a little bit, but whenever I'm, I'll just say at a really good poetry reading, when I leave there, every thought I have sounds poetic. <laughs> it all sounds like poetry in my mind because I've been so inspired by what I've heard. And, and really good poetry does that. It's like, yeah, I should be, I should go home right now and, and start writing some stuff down because I've been, you know, there's been that cross-fertilization thing that's happened, you know. Um, but yeah, great. I love reading the great collections. A few months ago, I was really reading a lot of poetry collections. Um, you know, I have like, you know, Terrence Hayes and, you know, folks like David Hassler and, and, and our local people like, like Ricky and, and uh, Jennifer Hambrick, you know, different folks, you know, Steve Abbott, Rose Smith, you know, I mean, it's so many, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I said I wasn't going to do because I'm leaving out folks who are wonderful. But, uh, but yeah, it, it does, it, it does influence me, I think, in a positive way, even though I don't write like them, but I look at how I might borrow from them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's healthy. I, I once heard someone tell me once that like, uh, when, when you don't have a style yet, it's just because you haven't read enough. But 
even after you have your style, you're still going to be borrowing from things you're reading. You can't yeah. ever escape that. Yeah. There's yeah. an incorporation that just either happens at the subconscious level or at the conscious level. You're like, oh, this guy's really cool or this girl's really yeah. cool. And you start yeah. writing and it, it sounds like them for a little while until you're able mm -hmm. to edit it out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, during the editing process, that's exactly what we do. We edit it out. And, and I appreciate what you said about, you know, the way that, that um, my writing looks on the page because that really does feel like, I mean, I guess that is my style, except when I make a real deliberate choice to do something different, um, just to kind of let it flow that way and, you know, feel it my shows. way through. It's a unique presentation. Mm -hmm. It shows. Thank you. Uh, so you, you brought up Poetry Out Loud. Um, you know, and for, for listeners who may not know, Poetry Out Loud is a contest. Would you like to describe the contest and your involvement? Uh, yes, Poetry Out Loud is a national recitation contest for high school students. It's funded by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Poetry Foundation and all uh, 50 plus states and territories in the United States participate in this program. Everybody gets uh, a grant from the NEA and support from the Poetry Foundation. And we engage with high school students. High school students, uh, students age nine through 12 uh, have the option to participate. And the way it works out is that a teacher will register a school through their state arts agency uh, to participate in the contest. And it works kind of like a pyramid in that it starts in the classroom and classroom teachers will um, they get a lot of materials, free materials that includes the Poetry Out Loud website, access to the website, which is free. Anybody can actually go to poetryoutloud.org. Uh, there's um, a teacher uh, sort of toolkit. Um, there used to be this really fine CD of people reciting and talking about poetry. But all these resources give teachers a chance to think about how they want to present poetry as a unit in their language arts classes or in any class because we encourage entire schools to get involved in some cases they do. But then the students select poems that they want to memorize and they have to memorize uh, at least three and then present them. And you know, it, it diff different schools attach it and, and uh, attack it different ways. Some will allow you just to, you know, just select a poem and memorize it. Uh, some will ask for two poems. Um, it, it varies, of course, whether it's the classroom level or the school level. But anyway, the students memorize poems and then they recite the poems from memory and they are evaluated on how well they recite the poem. And there's this whole criteria, a uh, whole set of uh, you know, criteria that the students are evaluated on. You know, voice and articulation, physical presence, uh, evidence of understanding of the poem, uh, overall performance, accuracy, those kind of things. Um, and so that determines how, uh, whether you go forward with, with the contest. So starting with the classroom level, then the school level, whoever wins the school contest will generally go to a regional semifinal and then from the regional semifinal to the state finals. And then from the state finals to the national finals. So there are all these different levels with prizes in between. But in the meantime, these students are memorizing poetry, reciting poetry, getting to know each other, getting to know themselves through Poetry Out Loud. And it's just an amazing program. And then the top winner at the national level wins $20,000. Oh, so we like to say that poetry is lucrative in America. <laughs> That's a scandal. Yeah. So when, when you're working with these students, like what, what, you know, what have you learned working with them? What, what qualities 
first of all, I guess, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to approach this question. Like what qualities make for a good speaker? You know, what, what do you think this program does for the students in terms of, it could be their confidence or their ability to express themselves. Like how, mm -hmm. how do you see the benefits of the program and how do you see the student engagement with it? Yeah, well, it's, it's all of that. Um, and, and I'll tell you, the program is moving into its 17th year. So, you know, so we've been at this for a while. I've been with them since the second year, um, which was, two, I came uh, on in December of 2006, 2006, 2007. And, and just to, to let you know how great this program is, the very first Poetry Out Loud national champion was Jackson Hilly, who was the very first Ohio Poetry Out Loud state champion. All right. Okay. <laughs> so we 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 set the we set the tone for that. Um, but I have, yeah, I've seen these students just first of all embrace this project, this program so completely. It's 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 like a discovery for them. Um, and yes, it does increase self confidence. Yes, it does help them to um, improve their speaking skills. Yes, it familiarizes them with great literature because the Poetry Out Loud anthology has, oh, well over a thousand poems. All the way back, you know, William Shakespeare, Billy Collins, you know, and they're always open to new people coming on to, um, um, into the anthology, into the uh, online anthology. Uh, there is also a print anthology of 100 poems uh, and still the same mix of classic and contemporary poetry. So the students get these really practical uh, opportunities to learn to speak, you know, to improve their public speaking, to develop self-confidence, to learn about great literature. Uh, I think for those who are aspiring writers and aspiring poets, you know, what better uh, way of practicing writing than to read the great, you know, literature, literary artists from, you know, years past. Uh, so they have that going for them as well. And, and some of them too ta do take advantage of that. Um, in addition to Poetry Out Loud as the uh, sort of spoken uh, contest, there's also a Poetry Ourselves aspect where students are able to submit poems that they've written. So the, pro the program also encourages uh, creative writing as well. So, so that's part of it. Um, but it takes a wide range of, of students in terms of their disciplines and their interests you know, Jackson Hilly, our very first winner, wanted to be an actor. And so this was perfect for him because he's up on stage and he's, you know, presenting this. Uh, we've had people who wanted to be attorneys. One of our Poetry Out Loud state champions, oh, I think it was back in probably 2009. Um, he graduated from Upper Arlington High School um, and became an attorney. But he was excellent. He, he won the state champion and actually was a national semifinalist. So... You know, everybody needs to know how to express themselves. So here's a great opportunity to, to learn how to do that. Um, but there's also the camaraderie aspect of it. I mean, it, yes, it is a competition, but these kids get to know each other. They support each other. They cheer each other on. Some of them create, you know, lifelong friendships. I mean, okay, 17 years at this point, but people who have become friends who stayed friends over the years. But then not just being friends with each other, but becoming friends with poetry. 
You know, I think about the poems that I was learning, you know, if you can trust yourself and all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too, you know, <laughs> you know, that we remember that stuff. And so they remember these poems. And one of the things we tell them is that this one means this to you at this point in your life. 10 years down the road, it's going to mean something else because you would have lived a little bit longer. You would have learned some things, you would have experienced some things, and you will, you know, uh, understand this poem on a different level. Um, so they have all of these really sort of great advantages that come from participating in the program. And from them, I just, I learned how they just, how open they are to embracing language, to embracing language arts, to, uh, to trying this, to getting up on stage, because so many of them you know, talk about being nervous, you know, because every time I got to get on stage, it's just there. It doesn't matter how often, you know, the butterflies are in the stomach. Yeah. <laughs> they are just there. But we tell them it's okay to be nervous. It just means you care. You want to do a good job. So, so I, I learned those kind of things from them. And then one of the things that we teach them when it comes to performance is that you don't want to overdo it. You know, poetry out loud is not slam. And there is a whole different approach. You know, there's the idea of appropriateness of dramatization. That's another uh, one of the criteria that uh, you don't want to do a whole lot of, you know, raising of the arms and gesturing and too much overemphasis on words. And, you know, you, you don't want to act it out. You want to make it more conversational because you want the words to predominate. You want, you want people to hear the message that the poet intended through the words as opposed to paying more attention to your actual performance. You know, so don't dress up in something, you know, outlandish. I remember one student one year wanted to know if she could start out on the floor and, and stand up. No, you cannot do that. <laughs> you know, if you're doing Casey at the back, you don't want to swing a bat, you know, because that's going to take off point. Right, exactly. You don't want to do that. You know, you're not acting it out. It's not, you know, uh, pantomime with words, you know, you're, you're speaking and you're conveying it, but there needs to be that emotional connection because, you know, the, the great poems do convey some emotion. You want to feel it. And so you want to co uh, convey the feeling within the poem and you want to write it as if you want to recite it as if you've written it yourself. You know, even though you did not write one of these words, but you presented in such a way that it sounds so authentic that people feel like, wow, you've experienced this. And when I see a young person recite a poem um, like uh, that Billy Collins poem, that um, forgetfulness, which I almost was experiencing just now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but forgetfulness by Billy Collins is, you know, a middle-aged man talking about how he's, you know, I think there are nine planets, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, trying to remember, the, you know, the ninth planet. But here's a 17-year-old boy who can embody that and understands what that feels like. You know, those are the ones that go forward. You know, those are the ones who, who show that they have captured the essence of this poem and they're performing it in such a way that the audience feels it because they also feel it. So I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I love poetry out loud. You know, I started out uh, doing that, as, as you said, as, as coordinator in, in 2006, 2007. And then I came on staff and was working for a while with a contractor. And then uh, after some years, um, I ended up back, you know, as in addition to my other work as a program coordinator at OHC, but also uh, continuing to um, kind of manage the Poetry Out Loud contest. But we also have started doing regionals. At first, we just went from, you know, whoever won the high school went directly to the state finals. So 
now we have sort of a sort of an intermediary, a group of intermediaries of six regional um, partners, and they handle the high schools and having the high schools come in and um, participate in the regional semifinal. And then whoever wins the regional semifinal goes on to participate in the state finals. Uh, it's much more efficient because we had gotten up to close to 40 students and trying to hear all those in one day got to be a bit much. So <laughs> doing the regional, doing the regionals is, is much more effective for everybody. That does sound exhausting. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how, how do you separate? Because it, it's it's interesting because it almost sounds like an acting experience. With you know, what the the criteria that you're looking at sounds mm -hmm. very much like if you go to, you know, uh, college students will go to like uh, hiring festivals where they have or a giant like audition festivals where you go yeah. and you audition for you know days at a time, you know, sometimes two three days in a row. And you know, playhouses pick you up. So, when it comes to, does that does that make it? Because you you really do have a mind for performance. You read like a performer. You write like a performer. You're you're evaluating performer criteria. So, do you have a difficult time separating poetry from performance when you're writing it or editing it? Um, I don't think I have a difficult time separating it. Um, because I know that um, when I'm performing it, it's going to be a different kind of thing because I discover even more after I've written it and, and during the performance process. Um, you know, I talked about the, the monologues that I've, I've done uh, based on women from the Old and New Testament. And so if I have been invited to perform a monologue, okay, so I've written it and I've gotten it down, but then when I stand up and start, and a lot of, most of the time they are presented from memory mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and another layer of anxiety to the process. <laughs> um, but, and you know, it's funny, I don't generally do a lot of rewriting at that point either, but it is a matter of trying to capture it. And I will go back sometimes, and this is something we advise our students to do. I'll go back and score my script or, or even when I'm reciting a poem, when, when we do our various poetry readings, Sometimes I will go back and just score it, you know, and, and look at places where I want to provide some space or where I might want to speed up or certain words I want to emphasize, you know, certain inflections I want to use. So it really is, now that I think, it really is a separate process. You know, the writing is completely separate from the performance. And on rare occasion, I might tweak a word or something, but for the most part, uh, I keep and I, I think what I try to do is to trust the writing process. Once I've written it and rewritten it enough times and, and, and I do read out loud when I'm working, working on it. So maybe that's part of it too, reading out loud, you know, not just for errors, but for just how it feels and how it sounds. And then uh, but when I'm up on my feet rehearsing it, then it's just a matter of, uh, okay, how does this sound to an audience? You know, do, is this conveying what I hope it's gonna convey? You know, does this sound, truthful, you know, is this part humorous if, if I want to, you know, play it for a laugh because I think a lot of, you know, so much of this stuff is, is funny. Um, so, you know, like I have this monologue that I wrote about Eve and it starts out, okay, so I blew it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, so I look for like a, a total uh, kind of uh, emotional experience. Awesome. After it's written, and then once I get it on, on its feet. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and, you know, you had mentioned at one point that there, that you felt there was a divide between good poetry and bad poetry. And yeah. is that divide a quality divide, a moral divide, or is it a mixture? <laughs> huh. I hadn't thought about the moral divide. That's interesting. Uh, I was thinking more in terms of quality and, you know, I have to kind of give some background on where they came from because when I went off to college, you know, I had a little poetry anthology that I've worked on and all of those poems that I'd written. And I took this class um, in black African literature. Um, uh, the teacher, the instructor was a woman named uh, Constance Berkeley. And she, um, this was, I was in upstate New York. I was, I was at Vassar College in upstate New York. And so, you know, she was one of the few black professors on campus and she had this course, you know, Black African Literature, Introduction to Black African Literature. And so it was so fascinating to read all these, you know, African authors from all over the continent who had, you know, written novels and poetry and all this stuff. And I just, just really loved it. And um, wrote a paper on this novel by the South African uh, author, Peter Abrahams. And, and my teacher really loved the uh, paper that I had written. So I felt like, okay, if she likes that, Maybe she'll like my poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so I got brave and I showed her my poetry. And when we met to talk about it, she said, well, it's nice, but it's not really poetry. Okay, so I'm crushed, right? I'm 18 years old, right? 18, yeah, that's a tough thing to hear. Tough thing it's to not, hear. Especially if you're not like a veteran yet, like you're, you're just getting your writing wings. I mean, that's a mm -hmm. tough statement. It was tough, it was tough. I didn't show people my poetry for a long time after that. But what she did for me, and I realized it much later, was she said, I'm gonna give you these poets, these list of poets, read their work, because this is poetry. So she gave me a bunch of Harlem Renaissance poets, you know. And um, after I, you know, he, after I healed, <laughs> I was able <laughs> to look up, you know, folks like County Cullen and, and, you know, even Langston Hughes, who I was familiar with in high school, you know. But uh, I was able to look at that and think, okay, this does make sense. This, this is, this maybe is why she was telling me that, because I was more along the Nikki Giovanni vein and she's talking about the more classic folks. Um, and so actually, I think her, her statement was well-intentioned, but I'm not sure that it was true to say it's not poetry because, you know, I've read so much stuff since then in an attempt to make some sense of what she said to me. And I remember reading an article from a young man years and years ago, he might've been a slam poet, but he said, dang it, this is poetry. You know, whatever it was that he had written. He was just really emphatic about, huh, I, you know, okay, regardless of what you say, this is poetry. Sure. Um, but it gave me this sense of what's good and bad poetry. And what I've really come to is, I think it's a quality issue, but I also think it's a matter of completion. So maybe it's not a good poem yet. You know, maybe it's a bad poem in this stage, but maybe if I go back and work with it some more and, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time revising whether it's a play or a short story or whatever, I have come to embrace the revision process. So I think it's just a matter of where it is in that stage of development. And hopefully it's on the way to being a good poem. And hopefully in the process of doing that, I'm not messing it up and making it worse. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how you know your writing's matured when you try to edit old poetry and it just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or something, you know, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> that's my benchmark yeah. at least, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you're right.
So you do a lot of re uh, a lot of rewriting yourself, a lot of um, you know, kind of revising and editing, or do your poems come forth brilliant, you know, in the first draft? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know, I would love to say uh that that was the case but no i spend hours looking at the same yeah. poems and and i'll put a poem I'm, I'm i'm a real big fan of shelving a poem until i've forgotten mm -hmm. what i was trying to do and then looking at it months later and being like okay i can be objective now you know yeah um yeah. my poems spend most of their time in the editing process yeah. usually <laughs> yeah yeah i agree me too well, would you like to read another poem before we head out? Sure. Um, all right, let's see. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I want to, this one, this is another one that's with the weird lines, probably. <laughs> um, Stylized, <but> <laughs> not <weird. laughs> Stylized. <laughs> This one was actually written for, um, to be performed with Wild Women Writing. Uh, this is the poetry group that I'm a part of. And generally we meet um, once a month and um, prepare for an annual program. Catherine Berkman, who's a retired uh, English and theater professor at Ohio State is actually our, our you know, grand leader. And we meet uh, at her place, at least we did, before the pandemic, when we started meeting on Zoom, um, which was another whole set of problems <laughs> for me, because you know, too much Zoom can be crazy after lots of Zoom. But um, but we generally will select a um, a theme that we want to write to, and then we all come together and share, and then select a piece, uh, one or two pieces for our for our lab performance, usually at the Columbus Museum of Art. So this is one of those pieces, and I think this is probably from the most recent. Uh, performance that we did, which was on Zoom a few months ago. So this is called Solved. The world is a puzzle of misfit pieces, wounds crying for healing, brokenness in planet Earth. We pout, protest, pray for the ceiling of sores, end of agony, a vaporizing of garbage in oceans, on land, in scarred hearts and toxic thinking because pieces do not fit. Land set off divorce. Pangea, one big mass before the continental divide, but like any organization began to drift, pieces shift. See where certain pieces might connect, African to South African, African to South American, Australian to New Mexican too, but science says rock formations in these land masses still match after millennia of drifting, same as Arctica and Antarctica, though those ice castles melt as earth speaks, shakes, howls, and hurricanes. How hard to see pieces fit, how people fit. So many do not, but could. Textures sleek as silk, Warm as wool, colors, a riotous mosaic of tones on skin, blue, black, and ebony, a cocoa mix from caramel to buttercream produced by the intermingle of master and African slave, deep toasted tones of tribes from Canada to Mexico to Australia's outback, 
skin transparency, lucidity of Russia and Icelandia, Anglos and Saxons. My friend Jose, with his all-seeing eye, said of Asians and Indians, Latinos, Jews, and Africans, if you really look at all of us, we all look alike. Adjust for skin color, occasional oddities, I think he's right. When I see two eyes, one nose, two lips, ears on either side, various configurations of hair, still, there is this puzzling piece, that ism of race that doesn't fit. Brave, strong warriors, wild, bold women in odd pockets of world history, though a White House remains his story, that ism of sex doesn't fit. Baby in cage doesn't fit. Mass incarceration doesn't fit. Or I just don't like you because you're different, disagree with me, challenge me, won't answer me, won't answer sufficiently to me, don't worship at all or won't worship like me, doesn't fit, nor despair. I find relief in prayer and I anger when we stop caring or loving or hugging or speaking or asking, are you in pain? How can I help? Call me if, if you need me. Do you need me? Can I help you? That fits. Compassion fits. Love still fits. Smooth as silk. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Oh, it's beautiful. All right. Well, this, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for, mo for more information. And Chiquita, thank you so very much for coming on. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. You made this very easy. Oh, that, that, <laughs> you are a on. prince among men. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thank you again. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh.